Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we start with artist Jill Magid. She's included in the season's two most prominent group shows, Stories of Almost Everyone, which is at the Hammer Museum through May 6th, and Art in the Age of the Internet, 1989 to today, which is at the ICA Boston through May 20th. Stories of Almost Everyone is curated by Aram Moschietti, and it's about our willingness, or not, to believe the stories offered by works of contemporary art. Its catalog was published by the Hammer and Delmonico Prestel. Art in the Age of the Internet at the ICA Boston is the first major American examination of how the Internet has influenced and impacted art making. It was curated by Ava Respini with Jeffrey DeBloy. Its catalog was published by Yale University Press. Incidentally, the ICA Boston is one of 14 Boston-area institutions to be examining the intersection of art and technology this season. Go to manpodcast.com. We'll have a link. You can see what they all are. Magid's work, presented as installation, sculpture, video installation, or via the internet, often examines questions around surveillance, permission, and consent. She's had solo shows at, or has fulfilled commissions for, the University Museum of Contemporary Art in Mexico City, the Berkeley Art Museum, the Intelligence Agency of the Netherlands, yes really, the Stedelijk, the Liverpool Biennial, and plenty more. Instead of having images of Magid's work on manpodcast.com, we'll link to her website. I think that will give you the fullest idea of, of what she's been making. On the second segment, Thomas Wynn discusses first sculpture, hand axe to figure stone, which is at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. But first, Jill Magid, after a break. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. On view through March 3rd is Living Proof, Drawing in 19th Century Japan, exploring the methods, techniques, and subjects of drawings during Japan's Edo and Meiji periods. Originally created as the primary step in making ukoye prints, drawings of the type exhibited were often discarded or destroyed through the process of printing. With more than 70 of these rare works on display, Living Proof bears witness to the working practices of some of the most celebrated print artists of the era, including Hokusai, Kuniyoshi, and Yoshitoshi. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Now on view at the Getty Center, an exhibition about one of the world's most iconoclastic exhibition makers. Harold Zaman, Museum of Obsessions, explores the Swiss museum curator's life and career, from his groundbreaking involvement with the avant-garde movements of the 1960s and 70s, to his global contemporary exhibitions of the 1990s and 2000s, to his personal reading of early 20th century modernism. Learn more about this Getty Research Institute show and all March events at the center at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Jill Maggot, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Tyler. As I mentioned in the introduction, in the work at least, and your interest in surveillance begins in around 1999-2000 in works such as Lobby 7 and Surveillance Shoe. 
and almost immediately you tie surveillance to questions of permission uh, and even consent. Do you remember why all of that stuff interested you at that point? Was it something in the air, national response to something, or just an experience you had? It came more actually from the work itself. Surveillance wasn't really a buzzword around that time. It was sort of like a niche. Yeah, that's interest. why I asked. <laughs> yeah. So I was in graduate school at the time at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and this super interesting program that has evolved since still also in an interesting way. But we there were only three of us in my whole year at MIT and um, seven professors. So it was a kind of interesting experience. But I came to surveillance in a sort of circuitous way. I was very interested in the city and finding possible moments of intimacy within the city. And I was looking at architecture and the urban landscape to kind of find these spaces. When I was living in New York, before I got to MIT, I was designing these kind of tensile structures just in drawings and little models um, using the existing urban environment to create these kind of soft, intimate spaces within the city. And then when I got to MIT, Dennis Adams, who was my professor at the time, he was like, you don't have the millions and millions of dollars to test these structures out. So how can you, and you don't even know if they'll work, if they'll create these feelings that you think they will. Can you try to find a scale to work in where you can test out these ideas? And so my projects, I, I tried to make a tent that didn't work. Then I made these kind of wearable sculptures that pulled people into intimate situations. And then I finally made this piece called the Kiss Mask. And I believe that was 98 or 99. And basically it took that tensile structure I'd been working with. In this case, it was a heating duct, you know, one of those ducts that looks sort of like a slinky or, well, you all know what a slinky is. So looked a bit like a slinky. And I made this mask for kissing. Um, it kind of looked a little bit like a gas mask for two people. And I wanted to create that sensation that happens between two people before like a first kiss, that uncomfortable moment. And I was trying to figure out how to document the performance of using this mask. And because I was at MIT and around people who were really invested in technology, someone introduced to me what was called a lipstick surveillance camera, which, you know, basically looks like a lipstick. And it was an infrared surveillance camera. And I sewed it into the tube of the mask and used it to document the experience. After doing that, the, the mask had interested me, but the camera and the view, the way it could record that space is really what led me to surveillance cameras. So in some oblique way, you were influenced by kind of a certain culture of experiment at MIT where you would try things out and then learn from things that you tried out, even if they weren't initially related to what you were doing, kind of a scientific influence. Well, I think it was more like, I mean, obviously it's a technology, that kind of camera. You you can't, at that time you didn't have small 
cameras otherwise, or at least I didn't know of cameras that I could access as easily that could get in there and not kind of get in the way of an intimate experience. And so the people around me just knew technology more. And yeah, I think I think it was all about experimentation, but it is kind of like a Joycean leap, you know, that that this camera could provide a, a view that I couldn't get otherwise, but then that viewpoint itself started becoming of interest to me. And it ended up being in your work for the next decade. We're going to come back to that lipstick camera in a, in a, in a different context, but I want to talk about some of the projects of yours that engage with surveillance and its means and how you ramped up. I mean, the first would have to be you're starting a company called System Azure Security Ornamentation for a project that, to my mind now, seems unbelievably kind of ballsy and audacious. I mean, it was a big step up because here's a piece that goes from, say, considering surveillance within a lobby of a single building and a single monitor, a piece we'll, we'll get to, or a piece like Surveillance Shoe, where you're kind of doing something almost sneaky, to it, engaging and then subverting a major municipal police department, which is just a, another magnitude of, 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 of nuttiness. That The police department is, is the Amsterdam police department in the Netherlands. So I'm kind of in awe of how you raise the stakes so enormously in one big step. Did you realize that you were taking such a big step up in weight class at the time? You know, I, I think that so much of the work, including this, happens organically. Okay, so it's true and not true what I'm saying in that, yes, the work unfolds organically in this way that it wasn't like, oh, now I'm going to take this giant leap. It really had evolved through these more performative projects that that we'll get to. And also the role I had been the performer. And then with this project you're talking about, uh, rhinestoning headquarters and system as your security ornamentation, it was my performative role changed from those earlier projects. But I did, b before I approached the police, I'd had this idea about surveillance cameras, like were they gargoyles, you know, are they just meant to kind of steer people away or are they really used in that someone's like actually watching through them to catch a criminal or, or deviant behavior or something. So I just kind of wasn't sure like if they were a fetish or if they were part of a larger system that was really being used. And so there I was at the Rijksakademie, a residency in Amsterdam at the time, and the studios are in these old military barracks that had been refitted into the this art institution. And so it had this like big military fence around the grounds with the studios. And at the front gate was a surveillance camera at the top of a pole. And so I had this idea of decorating it. And so I climbed up during the evening and with rhinestones, bright blue rhinestones, I glued these jewels all over the surveillance camera. And you know, it's like the old school ones that were giant with a beige covering. Almost the size of a woman's torso. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're really, they're, you know, they're no. probably three, two and a half, three feet long. They're, they're way longer than people realize because they're high up. So the scale is kind of thrown, but I knew 
how big they were because I had to order an enormous amount of rhinestones to cover it. And I had no money at the time. So they were like quite expensive for me. I mean, a couple hundred bucks, but at the time, you know, I was counting pennies. So anyways, I climbed up, I covered the camera with rhinestones. And the next day when I, when everyone showed up, they were like, oh my God, I can't believe you installed that surveillance camera. And some of the people who said this to me had been staffed there for over five years. And I was like, that camera's been there since I think it was seven years or something. And no one had noticed it. And it was that very strange thing about surveillance that it's like so obvious. But at the time, it was the beige thing worked somehow. (laughs) And people just didn't notice them. And so I was like, okay, well, it's one thing to decorate the camera at the door of an art studio. What would it mean to cover a surveillance camera that actually was tied to a powerful institution? Where I lived in the Jordan, right near Anne Frank's house, was right, you'd bike every day. I'd bike past the Dutch police department, the headquarters, and they had numerous giant surveillance cameras on the facade. And so I was like, well, I guess I should start there. Let me, let me jump in right there, because that's the right transition into the thing I wonder most about this project. So what you did after this original guerrilla action is you went to the Amsterdam Police Department and they and, and, and got them to hire you to, to decorate their closed caption TV cameras. This is just three years after Kiss Mask. Were you consciously, intentionally looking for a state actor with which to engage? There's definitely an intention for when I go in, but it just seemed like an important question rather to ask than do I need a state actor? It was, is what I'm doing really asking the question? You know, and there's one thing with experimenting in your studio, which is totally important. And I, I mean, I do that all the time, but then there's like an engagement with the real world. And I've always really been interested in that. And when I used to be a painter ages ago, that was what bothered me was that I felt like I was painting about things rather than really experiencing them, um, the kind of things that I wanted to experience. So What happened was that at MIT, when I made the piece Lobby 7, policemen or a series of policemen entered the scene while I was doing this performance. And their entry and questioning of what I had been doing really made me think about access and vulnerability and what kind of questions I wanted to be asking. So when you when you ask me like was I looking for a state actor, I think yes because at that point I understood that surveillance was a technology of the state. I mean, yes, it was also being used corporately, you know, businesses had them at the doors, but I was less interested in that. It was more of like a state or a government surveillance that was interesting me. And so, yes, I, I wanted to engage with that. And them. So the two projects, Lobby 7, which dates to when you're at MIT, 1999, and when you were 26, and System Azure Security Ornamentation when you were 29, 2002. So they're related in the ways you just detailed, but they're opposites in, in, in the sense that Lobby 7 was a kind of guerrilla action 
in which you took over a TV monitor in a public space at MIT and used that lipstick-sized camera to record your body in the surrounding area. And with the Amsterdam piece, you know, there's it started guerrilla, but ended up in a very specific engagement with the state. In the years after the Amsterdam piece, you keep engaging with the state and with state actors. So what what did you learn from the differences in those two experiences that led you to want to continue to engage governments and states? I feel like Lobby 7 kind of has the answers in it because I had been making these works like Surveillance Shoe where a camera was attached to the high-heeled shoes I was wearing and changed my relationship with the city through the through the image that the camera was producing and experiments in my studio or with the mask. What changed with Lobby 7 is that with this guerrilla action of going in and having this publicly accessible, what was it? Public accessible and that students and faculty of MIT could see it, but it was a closed circuit system within MIT. And I overtook it with this image I was creating, holding this lipstick camera, exploring my body through it in real time. And when the police came in and started questioning what was happening on the TV, I think for me, it really changed how a question could be asked and the the level of engagement with the questions I was having at this level was more interesting to me. And I really, I had been trained at MIT, a kind of Vito Acconci, you know, hero of the program was this guerrilla style way of making art. And it, it had this idea implicit to that of that, you know, police or governments were the bad guys and the artists or the activists were the good guys. And I just started finding that relationship like completely not complicated enough, that it's a fuller system. And as someone who lives in society, we're acting within and engaging with these systems all the time. And so me doing that as well through my work just started feeling like a natural way of working, if that makes sense. You know, the other thing you're doing in these years that you're beginning to engage with surveillance is you make a bunch of works with mirrors. It's a series of works called Mirror Tools and Videos. It's from the early aughts. It's one of two groups of work in which I think you're very in touch, intentionally or not, with the art historical canon. Were mirrors related to your interest in surveillance or were you thinking of that at the time as a whole nother investigation or experiment? I don't know if I would have used initially the word surveillance, but I think they were absolutely within the same breath and the same interest. So the mirror pieces that I was making, the first one, which is one of my, was one of my favorites, I made in the Louvre. And in, oh no, a later one I made in Versailles, but it was at the Louvre and I was staying in Versailles at some random person's apartment and there was a dentist tool in the medicine cabinet. You know, the dentist was like a mirror at the end of of a metal stick. Yeah. And I had a video camera at the time, one of those big chunky ones. And I don't know what I was doing, but I was experimenting with capturing in the 
in the mirror of the dentist tool details of things around me. And when I held in my other hand, the video camera, I realized that the camera, the technology, which probably wouldn't work with cameras today, because they're so much better. The camera couldn't focus on both the mirror and the background in quite, quite the same way. So there would be this uncomfortable moment where Either the background would be in focus or what was in the mirror was in focus. And then it would kind of like learn or something. And the edge of the mirror would disappear. And it was like the mirror created this hole in the footage. And so I went to the Louvre and I was capturing through the dentist mirror these details of like paintings of Jesus and other things like that. And it had this real strange erotics to it. But I definitely think that they felt like surveillance. It was this way of searching within existing space for what was there, but kind of pulling it out and focusing on it, which is what a surveillance camera really does. It captures the space and it becomes performative in that way. So I made that and then I made other ones where I cut mirrors the, set, the size of skyscrapers and was like moving around skyscrapers from Manhattan to New Jersey and back and all these things. And, it, and I really liked that aesthetically and conceptually, but I felt that same frustration that I was creating these metaphors but that I wanted to go beyond that. And that's where these performative pieces that start engaging the system developed from as well. It's interesting you mention the erotics of these mirror tools pieces. We'll have some images of them on, on manpodcast.com. Let me just quickly describe them. There's one that has, for example, a fairly ecstatic looking cherub reflected in the mirror and the mirror is lingering just above a man's crotch. Another one of kind of what looks, I mean, I don't know for sure, but it kind of looks like an 18th century French painting of a woman's breasts juxtaposed against a woman's legs. There is later on in your work, an uncomfortable, but unquestionably sexual relationship between surveillance, surveillor, and surveillance subject. I'm guessing this is where that begins for you, and you found it again by accident? You know, I think that kind of erotics really goes as far back as it can in my work. I mean, I don't, I don't think while you're, or at least while I was in high school and stuff, I wasn't thinking as conceptually about the work I was doing, it was more like draw the model or <laughs> paint a still life, you know, so I wasn't, I was always writing, actually. And I think you can probably find it in my writing, too. I mean, I even remember that I wrote this story when I was staying with my sister, who's older than me in Manhattan, about trying to find my balance in the subway without holding the bar, you know, and even the way of writing that was like there was an erotics to the bo my body in the body of the train car and finding this balance in space. So I, I think that 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 feeling of erotics has has been present always within the work. And I think it's the lens through which I see things. And so since that's so much of the way I see things, I think it really permeates all of the works and draws me to what I end up getting 
interested in. And since it's so much about like subjectively experiencing these systems around me and in a really intense, slow, focused way, somehow that kind of erotic lens is folded into that experience. Another area where your work both engages a lot of art history and also kind of gets into this intensely erotic space is works of yours that engage or involve letter writing. Uh, there's, of course, a long history of, of letters in art as everything from an artist leaving his or her signature within a painting to Dutch golden age scenes of women receiving letters in a way that vaguely or sometimes less vaguely suggests that they're from soldiers who are busy fighting the Spanish. And a great example is Evidence Locker, the work in the ICA Boston's Art in the Age of the Internet Exhibition, which is probably your most famous piece, and deservedly so. It is a work that, uh, you know, we'll have lots of links to it on manpodcast.com, but for, for the purposes of here, it's a work that reveals and subverts and reorients the surveillance network in Liverpool, the, the city in the British Midlands, and correspondence is part of that work in two ways both in how you access the CCTV footage of yourself from the state and for a viewer. The viewer has to write letters to request to see the footage of you, and and, and, and then viewers can be sent that to their email and in installments. Uh, very long question, uh, made, made very short, very suddenly. Why did you decide to make correspondence as fundamental to the piece as it as it is? Well, Evidence Locker... And the way the process of the way it was made, including the letter writing, was almost it almost comes as an instruction manual. So I learned that when I wanted to make this piece in 2004, that Liverpool had this really large surveillance system, the largest of its kind at the time. And that there were these 242 cameras and they filmed the city in real time, 24 hours a day. And then that goes to time lapse. And after 31 days, the footage, which is kept on a police computer, cascades off the system, never to be seen again, unless the police or a citizen pulls the footage, puts it in an evidence locker, and it's there for seven years, the statute of limitations. So while the police... As it because it's a police-run system, can just go ahead and make that request to pull footage. A citizen who wants to access that footage must fill out a form, and in this case, it was called the Subject Access Request Form, and it's the legal document that says who you are, where you were, the time of day, and the incident that happened. And you had to fill that out and put a picture of yourself and send 10 British pounds to the police. And by law, they had to search you on the system. So the the architecture of the system required that you send them this form in order to access the footage or to at least get the footage pulled and put on the evidence locker. So my decision to use that form as an intimate love letter, obviously was a decision of mine to turn the form into a letter. But I think there's also something implicit to the system itself that that invites that kind of engagement with it. I just sort of pushed it up a notch and filled out these forms 
like Dear Observer and wrote them like a diary so that the police were forced to read this diary entry, but all throughout the letter, I'm constantly answering the legal questions of where I am, what happened in the incident that they had to find on the system. But letter writing must have interested you from a conceptual point of view because it stays in the work for, for another decade. Absolutely. Well, writing always was a huge interest of mine. I was always writing along the way. It was more like my question was, how do I incorporate writing into the work? Because up to Evidence Locker, writing was something that I did separately. And then the artwork was the artwork. And Evidence Locker presented rather an opportunity to bring them both into the same project. And I think letter writing mirrors this whole idea of engaging a system and eliciting a response from it. That's a kind that communication is kind of epistolary. It it it's just sort of a natural step. And then I think letter writing because my projects are engagements and relationships, the, the form of the letter often works very well to, to make these engagements or in, engage, period. I mentioned that Evidence Locker is suffused with erotics. There are kind of two things about that I want to ask about. You move through the surveilled sites in Evidence Locker wearing a red jacket. It's easy to imagine that you chose a red jacket because, hey, look, you can't miss it. <laughs> it's it's bright and loud. Uh, is it that simple or was there kind of a more specific reason? I mean, mostly it was, yeah, that you're not going to miss it. It's a gray <laughs> British city, you know, by the water that's foggy. But I mean, I chose like a red leather trench coat. I was interested in the surveillance system becoming like a, a cinema space, you know, a, a film set rather, that you have this city that's equipped really to become instantaneously a film set. And the cameramen are policemen, which is a whole different kind of eye, right? They're looking for a very specific thing or supposed to be looking for a very specific thing. So it's a, it's it's um, not a neutral film set. So there's the surveillance thinking about it in that way as a film set, and there's all these eyes on the camera watching the city, and it's a one-way dialogue. There's an erotics, I feel, to that very situation, or the potential for an erotics. And there, there were a lot of pieces of that for me. The fact that each camera kind of sets up a stage that it's focused on. And generally you have citizens walking in and out of these stages with no kind of no awareness that they're on camera, right? But then this other person who's watching is watching through them and there are these anonymous individuals until they're not, right? Until the camera catches something and trains on that one person and that one person becomes the focus of that other person. And so that kind of finding someone in a crowd and focusing on them and being able to zoom in and study them, there's a potential intimacy and erotics to that, to the way that works. Which you extended by creating a situation. Uh, I'm going to try and describe this as, as clearly as possible, but if I get it slightly wrong, please do jump in. 
by creating a situation by which you would close your eyes and have your surveillers direct you through through spaces, through public spaces. You know, this is, you know, one of a couple places in your work where there's kind of an unmistakable dominance and submission, even kind of S&ME aspect. Either you found that possibility within the work once you were kind of on site to create this thing for for a biennial, in this case the Liverpool biennial, or, or, or was this a situation where this had been you know, these erotics had been things you'd been thinking about related to your work, going back to your student days, and bam, all of a sudden there was a way to to use that, to access that here. It's both a consciousness of the potential of the system and as well my interests that have run for a really long time throughout my work. So Lobby 7, the piece that I did at MIT in, in the lobby, Lobby Number 7, was, you know, using the lipstick camera that I was holding in my hand while I had a wireless transmitter going to a wireless receiver on this monitor. What I was doing was exploring the surface of my body underneath my clothes in this public space of the lobby. And the camera was kind of jumping in and out of that space beneath my clothes through the orifices of my clothes, like where the neck is and the sleeves are, to get the outside space and then jump back in. So it's a good metaphor for all of the work. And so I think that, you know, I I definitely felt the potential intimacy and erotics of that kind of surveillance system in Liverpool and pushed that in the work. But, you know, when I started Evidence Locker, my idea was that you know, I'll go to Liverpool, I'll be there for 31 days, which is the amount of time the footage stays on the police computer before it cascades off. And I'll write the 31 letters and I'll show those letters. And then maybe I'll get like a minute of footage that the police will allow me to have. And I'll show that on a loop. You know, I I didn't think that I was going to get 14 hours of official police footage and that they were going to give it all to me. So like, these are the kind of things you just, you know, why my work I think has remained in the realm of nonfiction is that things unfold in ways that I could never have imagined when I begin to explore them. And so the police, I didn't know that the police were going to get really into following me and really into reading the letters and to the point where I was going into the control room and teaching them about Godard, my favorite film director, and saying, can you film me like Bridget Bardot? And they would call me and say, you know, there's this beautiful patch of sunlight over on camera 44. You should walk there now. I mean, I just didn't think it was going to go that far, but it did. The idea of closing my eyes, which is the time I, I did it. The first time, it was a spontaneous decision. It was um, one day where there was a certain part of this pedestrian area of Liverpool that had quite a number of cameras. And I got to know by the movement of the cameras if they were following me or not, which is another really interesting thing of the work is how the city starts changing. Like I see it, I started seeing the, the whole city of Liverpool as this film set that I was performing on. Like it became very existential in a way, but I knew that they were watching because I saw the cameras following me. 
and I stood in this pedestrian area and I closed my eyes for a minute. And then later on, when I went to the control room, they were all freaking out and saying, oh my God, it was so scary when you closed your eyes because we couldn't protect you. You know, we couldn't tell you if you were safe or not. And so that gave me the idea that I said, this is when cell phones like first came out. No one was like walking around with them and talking, but they were around. And I was like, oh, why don't I, you know, put um, an earpiece in my cell phone and I'll hide it in my hair and no one will see it. And if you guys want to call me to let me know if I'm safe or not, just do so. Just I have a favor to ask you, can you take this dictaphone and when you call me, just record it for me when you call me. And so the next day they were filming and I called them and I said, I want to close my eyes. Will you lead me through the city blind? And they agreed. And that's the film Trust. That's an 18 minute video that I, I made through the cameras with my eyes closed. The year was 2004. So this is also before smartphones could record phone calls. So in case anybody's missing that part, because I had to think about it for a second. So after you do Evidence Locker, again, 2004, you kind of wander away, forgive the horrible kind of pun, from surveillance for a while with three works that engage portraiture, uh, composite head and auto-portrait pending, all address portraiture in one way or another. And even the work in the, the Hammer's Stories of Almost Everyone is a presentation of representation one step removed. It's some of the ashes of the architect Louis Berrigan converted into a diamond. Was addressing or updating portraiture of interest to you? How did you end up there? I don't think there is such a break in surveillance with any of those pieces, actually, because I would say that Evidence Locker is a kind of portrait as well. So it's a portrait of me in the city, the, the Liverpool Police Department becomes like an extension of a diary just playing out. And I, as the protagonist, do sort of stand in for the potential of anyone who takes on that role. Of course, it's very specific to the way I would do it. But that potential of a citizen writing those letters and engaging was within the architecture of the system. That potential was there. So the the works that that came after some of the ones in 2005, you're talking about like composite or there's a piece called head that's related to composite and auto portrait pending. They were um, not as much auto portrait pending, but composite and head were both using police forensic procedures of identifying somebody. So there was a kind of psychological shift that happened too, because after Evidence Locker, I felt so exposed. You know, I was walking through the city and every movement was recorded on camera to the point where when I went back to Amsterdam, I was like, do I exist? You know, if, if no one's watching me when I'm walking down a street, like, am I here? And it, my work went a little bit more quiet, but I was actually hanging out in the police library reading these books on forensics. And that's where some of these other books, I mean, excuse me, where these other artworks came out of because I was reading like how to interrogate someone and how do forensics, you know, find a skull and figure out who the person is that it belongs to. So they all grew out of that research. 
one of the drawings in composite, which is a, 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 a composite is an artwork that is based on the cognitive interview used by law enforcement to acquire information about uh, what a suspect may look like. And then a sketch artist makes a drawing based on what that person is told. In one of them, you look eerily like Ivanka Trump. Oh, God. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we'll leave that. <laughs> we'll skip right by that and hope that induces people to, to, to look at the images on, on manpodcast.com. So in all of these works, as we're talking about them, you're an artist, you're the artist, you're the protagonist. But in a work that comes along a little bit later called The Spy Project, 2005 to 2010, you are super overtly the protagonist. You are surveilling and interrogating the interrogators and surveillers. Did you think through moving from becoming the subject as you are on the screens in front of us anyway, in, in say, Evidence Locker, to taking on the more overt role of protagonist? I think they're all different versions of protagonist. And I've always thought of myself in the work as a kind of tool, you know, that I'm using myself as a tool to explore these systems within society that we confront every day and that might even seem like banal to us, like surveillance cameras, you know, they're so omnipresent that they're, they're almost not there anymore, you know? And it was like, how can I use my body or my thoughts, my, my voice to create a dialogue with systems that are inherently designed to not be a dialogue, to be a one-way view of observation. The, the role of protagonist, I think, comes with the very idea of engaging a, a closed system into a dialogue. You immediately become a protagonist by doing that. So I take that role and I feel a responsibility in that role. But of course, my responsibility is different than the people who are running the system that have very specific guidelines and have a very clear, seemingly clear mission of what that system was designed to do. Whereas I'm really looking at, okay, what is the system doing? What else could it do? And if I use the system for its other potentials, how does that system seem to change or our perception of that system change. And so the work really flip-flops between being the performer as in lobby seven, that's my body, on camera, in the monitor, but also in the lobby itself. And then the more behind the scenes role of performing system is your security ornamentation when I'm rhinestoning the cameras and it's more about the cameras than what's happening in the boardroom when I'm talking to the police. In terms of how that then evolved with the spy project, I would say my role was not in front of the cameras anymore. So my role as a protagonist was, again, stepping into these seemingly closed systems of control and engaging them in a dialogue that's meant to be communicated outside of it, which is not usually what an intelligence agency signs up to do, right? So, so in terms of my role changing as a protagonist, it's more like the system I'm engaging has a different set of qualities. And so my role reflects that. You know, one of the things that the work increasingly reflects as we get 
up to the Barragon Archives, kind of end, ends in, in a way just before the Barragon Archives, is that you either accrue or are more willing to wield power. In Lincoln Ocean, Victor Eddy, which is the piece about surveillance in, in New York and in which you, you come to know a law enforcement officer well, you accrue so much power in that piece that you are taught how to disarm a cop and you include in the exhibition of the work a bullet from his magazine, which, you know, again, erotics, lots of Freudian implications there. And of course, the work about the Dutch Secret Service spy project, you know, you have and wield and find ways throughout the five years of the project to exercise power to exhibit what you learned and gained while making the piece. Were you consciously trying to demonstrate your increasing power as you learned about these systems and how to work within them? Or is it just that as your career has progressed and you've had bigger and more power, bigger opportunities, that you've had opportunities to point to those things more? I just see it completely differently from from the then the whole I would pose the question differently and that firstly the way I'm interested in looking at power is not that it's something you wield but that power is a set of relations you know a set of relationships and power moves you know I had this a class that really affected me that I actually write about in the spy project Elizabeth Povinelli was the professor and she actually wrote about the Barragan archives piece which is in the book the proposal by Sternberg Press she taught a class in my undergrad that was called surveillance and power it was all about how power is this set of relationships and you engage in them. I just don't believe that power, that I like gained more power. I think- You, you did exhibit a hollow point bullet from a police officer who's who you disarmed by gaining access to his magazine. Well, he taught me how to, right, how right, to do right, that. Right. So I, but again, I wouldn't say that I wielded power. I would say that, that we participated with power in a mutually vulnerable way that isn't the way normally you think of police behaving with someone who's not a police person, right? So I think that like what what interested me in what started rather Lincoln Ocean Victor Eddy is, and maybe this goes to to your earlier question about a movement from surveillance cameras, was that I moved back to New York and it was after September 11th, a couple of years after September 11th, not a couple, a lot of years after September 11th, it was 2007. But, but it, the, the landscape of surveillance I found coming back to New York had changed from not just cameras, but now you had these cops who were stationed on the platforms and just standing there. And I started thinking about them as like the new surveillance camera, but they're human beings, you know, and they're, I learned that their jobs are to stand there for 12 hour shifts and make sure that there's no terrorist activity happening on the platform. Like that was their, I don't know if it's that way now, but that was their sole job was they were trained to look for terrorism, terrorists on the platforms of New York. But they were also like surveillance cameras, right, picking up this really intimate view of the city by standing in the same place 
for 12 hours. And they were mostly immobilized while everyone else in the subway is running around and moving. The cops are holding still and they have a very particular way of observing the city. They obviously are in a position of power. And then a citizen myself, which is usually not involved with that, starts engaging them. And so right away, the second we're in an engagement that way, there's a different relationship of how power is being used. He's like bringing me in and teaching me about his job. But what I was interested in is what is all of these projects, there's questions that I'm asking through them. And how power moves between us all is part of learning what are these systems, why are they in place, what's our engagement with them, and what is anyone's potential to engage, which is a way of questioning how much power one has within society, right? You can be the person that unconsciously viewed, you know, or you can step into a role of a named individual who is outright engaging with these systems that are usually closed to us. So I just think it's really important to think about power in a more complicated way. And then, of course, my role within the work is informed by that way of thinking. Which brings us to the Baragon Archives. So I think of you as having and wielding power in these works of of, of the aughts and into the tens, if that's what we call them. <laughs> and in the Baragon Archives, it's a piece in you put yourself in a position of having almost no power. So just a quick bit of background on what the Baragon Archives is. It's a piece, it's an engagement, might be a better word, with Baragon, the Mexican architect, and his legacy. The situation around Baragon is that his archives, his professional archives, and the images he had made of his work during his life have ended up being almost entirely controlled by one company and one person. And you have poked at that bear in all manner of ways over an extended period of time. I understand there are lots of reasons you were interested in the Baragon archives, but was being in a radically different power situation than you had been in your work over the previous decade one of them? I hope I didn't make it seem like I'm not aware of when I'm in these projects that, yes, I have a responsibility, any engagement, and there's a power in that by by engaging. So it was more like the wield word that that I am careful around. But again, I think that I see it more that there's these these systems that include me or don't include me. And I would say, like with the Dutch intelligence agency, I'm an American. I was an American in Holland. So I'm a citizen, but like most likely the Dutch intelligence agency wouldn't have engaged with me unless I made that piece. And the same with the Liverpool system, even if that was a system in New York, you're still as a citizen outside of that system and just being watched, right? And then I choose to step in and engage it. And I think the same is with the Berrigan Archives project is more that maybe there's an important space that's a kind of recognizing that a system's even there. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think the work exposes that. I think the work reveals that to people who might not, you know, the enormous high percentage of people who wouldn't 
understand there's a system to navigate in considering uh, the work of somebody who's been dead for 20 years. Totally. And with the project before, quickly just evidence locker, that the the possibility of engaging with the system by sending a citizen, excuse me, a subject to access request form was in place three years when I arrived in Liverpool and I was the first citizen to ever fill one out. And, you know, so, yeah. So, so many times people say to me, like, how did, how did you do that? How did it happen? And I'm like, those things are there. You know, there's, there are openings to step into, but they're not always made that easy to see where they are. It takes a lot of research to be like, oh, I didn't know I could write this letter and then they have to follow me, you know? So with the Barragon project, that also, you know, sometimes like Evidence Locker, I was invited to do a piece in Liverpool and then research the system. But with the Barragon project, I had seen Barragon's work at Casa Barragon, and I was totally moved immediately by his work. Right when I saw the house, I was, Barragon's architecture is often called literary, and um, whether I understand that, how people meant it or not, but I I really wanted to write in his house <laughs> right after I toured it, and I was super interested, but I was like, okay, I'm not the kind of artist that, you know, makes an artwork about an architect, just I'm interested in his work, but I, but I didn't think I would actually make a piece about him. And then I learned the story of his contested legacy and how his personal archive, house and library are owned by this foundation in Mexico, but his professional archive through a series of events got bought by this Swiss furniture company and then they made a foundation. And that his legacy was split over across an ocean and that the copyrights and the IP rights were owned in Switzerland and very aggressively protected. And suddenly the idea of Barragon not only being moved by his work, but this whole structure of power and inaccessibility around him started, obviously, from having talked to me, you could see how... I became interested in exploring what this meant and what it could be. And I had made a work in 2005 um, at the same time I was making composite and head in some of those other works in which I was exploring what an artist's legacy is. So these questions around Barragon kind of rose up to be, oh, wait, this is something I want to look more deeply into. Jill Magan, thanks so much. Thank you. You really can't miss this one. Now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan and only until March 11th is the major performance installation by Tanya Bruguera, entitled Havana 2000. On view for mere hours before being shut down by the Cuban government in 2000, this work signifies Bruguera's complex relationship with authority and the contradictions of life following the Cuban Revolution. The installation will be closed on Monday, March 5th for maintenance. Get tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today before it ends. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents the first comprehensive survey in the United States of work by contemporary artist Jan Vo. In his installations, sculptures, photographs, and works on paper, Vo questions the way we define ourselves through personal histories, cultural affiliations, and national allegiances. He treats objects, whether they are ancient Roman sculptures, 
letters written by prominent politicians, or glittering chandeliers from a grand Parisian ballroom as narrative vessels that are both vividly personal and broadly historical. Visit through May 9th and experience artist tours, films, and concerts in conjunction with Jan Vo. Take my breath away. Learn more at Guggenheim.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Eve Loris Cohen Meeting Ground at its downtown location from April 19th through September 2nd. For Loris Cohen's first solo museum presentation on the West Coast, the artist takes as his starting point MCASD La Jolla's current expansion, a construction endeavor involving the conversion of Sherwood Auditorium into a multi-purpose gallery. On the occasion of Sherwood's disappearance, the artist has engaged in an excavation of the history of the auditorium and, in turn, of the museum itself. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, archaeology professor Thomas Wynn. Along with artist Tony Berlant, he's the co-curator of First Sculpture Hand Axe to Figure Stone, which is at the Nasher Sculpture Center through April 28th. The show presents ancient hand axes and figure stones, some of which are as many as two million years old, and posits that their making was motivated by aesthetic decisions. That suggests that they may be considered works of art. The thought-provoking, amazingly readable, and beautiful catalog was published by the Nasher. We'll have a link to the museum's website where you can buy it for $70. Thomas Wynn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. The core of this exhibition is that objects we've long considered to be merely functional, stone tools and particularly hand axes, were often actually aesthetic objects, artworks in today's parlance. So is this show is substantially the product of artist Tony Berlant's collecting and y'all's combined thinking. When did you begin to think of these objects as aesthetic in at least partial origin? The idea that early stone tools also carried uh, aesthetic aspects is actually not new, and I'm not the first one to think of it. It's an idea that's been floated about probably for 150 years by some archaeologists. They just never had any particular framework in which they could make this work from an evolutionary point of view. So I think the only thing I've added to it is a particular academic perspective known as neuroaesthetics, which is basically the neurological underpinnings of aesthetic experience. And it turns out when we look at stone tools from that perspective, they actually tell a very interesting story. So the idea of aesthetics being old is not new, if that makes any sense. But the approach that I and Tony have used to look at these artifacts is, I think, new. We're going to go to back to the beginning of the show in a minute. But before we do, could you give us an example of a tool that might help us understand how what you brought to the show does what you just described. Perhaps the best one to look at is catalog number 16, I think. No, 15, catalog 15. A hand axe from a place in South Africa called Katu Pan. Um, this is actually a very remarkable object because from just from a perceptual point of view, it's very attractive. It's very symmetrical. The shape itself is very pleasing, but 
more than that, if you know anything about the way stone tools are made, it's very clear that the person who made this tool was trying to accentuate the layered nature of the stone. So there's a, a kind of fluting that runs along the sides. That was very intentional. And because of that fluting, you can see the layering very clearly. Whereas if you'd used a different kind of flaking, uh, you could probably couldn't have noticed the layering as much. Now, the interesting thing here is that this provides no functional advantage to the tool whatsoever. There's no reason to do this if you're just going to be using the tool to butcher an animal or, say, carve on a piece of wood. So clearly the person who made this was attracted to the visual pleasure that the artifact gave. And that's what we mean by an aesthetic component to the artifact. It's pleasing to look at. This hand axe you're referencing is about 600,000 years old. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. So let's go back to kind of the beginning of the show, the beginning of the catalog. The third object in the catalog, and I presume kind of it comes along early in the exhibition, is a spheroid from modern-day Tanzania and is about 1.4 million years old. Why is it a pivotal object? What does it suggest? These objects are actually a little bit controversial. They're known as spheroids for an obvious reason, because they're spheres of rock. And they're a little hard to understand because they're, the dating is not controversial. This particular artifact comes from an excavated site at Olduvai Gorge, and the dating is, is very good for this object. And there are several more like this. So, And they're clearly not natural objects. I mean, these are not objects that somebody picked up out of a stream. These are the result of repeated bashing of a cobble uh, again and again and again until it assumed a round shape. So why? I mean, why were they doing this? Louis Leakey, who is a fairly famous character in, in the history of paleoanthropology, even suggested that these were bola stones. That is, they were tied on the ends of thongs and used as projectiles. But there's no other really good evidence that that would be the case. And moreover, there's no reason if you're going to make a bola that the, that the rocks have to be round. You can simply just get normal-sized rocks and tie them on the ends and use them for your bola. So it looks as if they were very attracted to this spherical form. Now, it probably was also a tool. That is, they used it for bashing and crushing things. But they were attracted to the sphericality of the object. And that's what Tony and I think is, is one of the important things about this, because the early objects, the ones that are sort of one and a half million years old, like this one, demonstrate some very basic gestalt forms. And these are perceptual biases that we are all born with, that in fact, probably uh, most primates are born with. We prefer these symmetrical forms, whether it's radial symmetry, like the spheroids, or bilateral symmetry, like the hand axes. Um, if you put somebody in an fMRI machine or measure their emotional response and show them objects, they prefer objects that are have these basic forms. So what we think is that the hominines were beginning to pay attention to what the artifacts looked like, and they were attracted to these regular forms. So that's 
why this sphere is so important for us. So, so speaking of the, the age of objects, the oldest object in the exhibition, I think, is 2.5 million years old, and the youngest is 50,000 years old, which is a heck of a span. What species are we talking about here? And are you arguing that we see the growth of the brain and even evolution play out in these objects? The simple answer to that is yes. The oldest object, the Scott pebble, is a found object, so it wasn't manufactured. But the reason we think a hominine paid attention to it is that it was moved. The site in which it was found, the site of Makapanskot, doesn't have any jasperite. Somebody had to carry this in from several kilometers away. And it's that act of carrying that suggests that the hominine found something interesting in the pebble. Now, it turns out that the hominines living at Makapanskot at that time were a form known as Australopithecus africanus, uh, which was a relatively small-brained bipedal creature, had the brain probably a little bit larger than the brain of a chimpanzee. In many respects, these Australopithecines, as we call them in the plural, really fit nicely between apes and humans in, in a lot of ways. They're intermediate kinds of creatures in that they were bipedal but had relatively small brains. Um, but it's, it's interesting that they were also attending to the visual qualities of objects and collecting them. So in, in a sense, the Makapanskat pebble anchors the show, and then things begin to change. Now, they change very slowly at first, but over the course of the next two million years, there are some pretty interesting changes in, in what the hominines were, were doing with their tools. So what does the Makapanskat pebble suggest regarding the evolutionary connection, if you will, between recognizing faces and aesthetics and toolmaking? Well, I think it, it represents really two things. First, that the hominines were beginning to pay attention to objects, not just in terms of what they could do, but in terms of what they appeared to be. Um, and I think this was actually tied to tool use. And I have a long argument about this in the catalog, which I don't need to go over. But because they were manufacturing stone tools, they had begun to be very interested in the qualities of rocks themselves, because these were the raw material of their tools. But then in the Makapanskat pebble, apparently a hominy was looking for either a core to make a flake out of or looking more likely for a hammerstone and saw a face. And what this tells us is that Faces are a salient pattern that hominines recognized very easily. And we know this from the comparative literature as well. All anthropoid primates recognize faces very easily. So the only thing that really has to happen in an evolutionary point of view for, in a sense, a beginning of an aesthetic is that objects begin to give visual pleasure. And that's what the Makapanskat pebble suggests, is that initially, this started out simply as found objects and maybe the accidental features of the tools that they were making. And then later, beginning about 1.8 million years ago, they started to try to produce these things, not just find them, but to produce the patterns themselves. So they produced stone tools by a process that paleontologists called napping, K-N-A-P-P-I-N-G. What is, I, I think we should probably explain what napping is before we go on. <laughs> Anybody can try it at home, except I don't necessarily recommend it. 
Basically, napping is a process of breaking rocks to produce sharp edges. That's what napping is. And, and the term napping actually is an old English term that was applied for people working in stone, producing things like gun flints. It's the same basic principle. That is, if you hit a rock correctly, you can fracture it. And the fractured rock has sharp edges. And that's what the hominines were looking for, was the sharp edges, because they use them to cut things. And for the bigger artifacts, they use them as sort of crushing edges to break into the bones of animals to get at the marrow. So it's a kind of brutal process. And one, well, I'm not very good at it. I should admit this right, right away. But some people are actually quite good at it. They've trained themselves to be good at stone napping. But it's actually kind of a dangerous thing to do because if the rock breaks inappropriately, little pieces fly off of it and fly into your eye. You can cut yourself. I had a friend who actually cut all the way down to a an artery in his hand, stone napping at, at one point because the rock he was hitting broke in an awkward way and just cut right into all the way through the, the palm of his hand. So, But that was the basis of human technology for probably three million years. And we got quite good at it. And in fact, some features of our hands probably evolved to be stone napping hands. That's something most people don't appreciate. A lot of the show is, is hand axes. Could you take us through three or four hand axes and show us how we kind of see a narrative of aesthetic determination or a narrative? Yeah. Okay. So the, the first one we really need to look at is catalog number seven. It's on page 35. This is an object from Kenya. Yes, it's from a site called Kokisili. And this is the arguably the oldest hand axe site in the world by perhaps a few tens of thousands of years. And this particular hand axe is a very basic hand axe. John Gowlett, who, who wrote one of the essays in the catalog, I think has come up with the best real account of why they made these things is their basic ergonomic devices. And that's the key term, ergonomic, is that what the hominins were trying to do was produce an artifact that had a fairly long cutting edge that they could hold comfortably in their hand and that gave them leverage in terms of what they were doing. And this artifact is a perfect example of that. You can see it's relatively primitive in a sense, but it has a very basic bilateral symmetry that may not actually have been intended in this case, but results from them removing flakes from either side to produce cutting edges. And then at the base, there's this sort of what we call cortex, which is the natural surface of the rock that's not been flaked. And they would hold the artifact there so that the most of the weight of the artifact was in the palm of the hand and then use the rest of the artifact for cutting, probably for butchery primarily, because it's a pretty big, heavy object, and it was probably a heavy butchery tool. But that's how the hand axes get started. So that's, in, in a sense, the next starting point, because the hominins made this thing intentionally and were very interested in the features of this particular object. So this is the oldest one at about 1.6 million. Now, if we jump up to catalog number 13, the black hand axe from Gesher Bernat-Yakov, this hand axe is about a million years later, I mean, in terms of dates. And 
you can see a number of things have happened. First of all, the bilateral symmetry is beautiful on this artifact. And the person, it's made out of flint. And the person who made it devoted a considerable amount of care to producing this particular shape. Now, Tony and I refer to this shape as a teardrop shape. If you look at the previous hand axe we looked at, the Cochisili hand axe, it doesn't have a nice teardrop shape. It's sort of vaguely bilaterally symmetrical. But this one has this really pronounced narrowing to a tip from a broader base. And this is an aesthetic production. For whatever reason, uh, the hominins thought that this particular teardrop shape was a very pleasing shape and was not only pleasing, but it produced an ideal ergonomic artifact. Because if you look at it, you have still have the mass at the base of the artifact. That's where it was held. There's a long cutting edge. In this case, they converge towards the tip. And in this case, a very sharp tip. So if you wanted to punch into an animal, if you were butchering it, this would be an ideal kind of artifact to have. But another thing about this artifact is it's actually quite important. If you go turn to the next pages, you can see what most of the artifacts from Gesher Bernadyakov look like. And they're not very nice looking. They're actually rather crude. So what this particular hand axe indicates is something Tony and I call exceptionalism. And this is one of the puzzles of early Stone Age artifacts, is when you look at collections from sites like Gesher Bernat Yakov, what you see are hundreds of hand axes that are sort of, to use a rude term, they're kind of butt ugly. And they're not, they don't really look like they're very attractive. They're perfectly functional objects in terms of doing the job, but they don't look very nice. But then what you'll see is a few objects, in this case at Geshebenakikov, this flint one, that is just beautiful. It's different. And the question is why? And that is why did hominines, what, 800,000 years ago, decide for some artifact to invest all of this effort to produce a very attractive, very beautiful um, artifact. And that's, how, that's actually kind of puzzling. We can posit lots of possible explanations for it, but I think the easiest way to understand it is that whoever was doing it was expecting somebody else was going to be looking at this thing and evaluating it. In other words, they're showing off for whatever reason. Um, not that artists showed off, show off, don't, don't get me wrong, but, but it, in a sense, and, and Tony likes to talk about this more, more than I do. In a sense, that's an artistic impulse that is to produce a beautiful object that's different from what others are doing. And so when we look at the this Gesher Bernard Yakov hand axe, this is certainly what, what we see. We, we have already talked about the Katupan hand axe. Uh, that would be the next one I would put in here because it's at about 600,000. And again, the Katupan hand axe is a wonderful example of exceptionalism. When I was in South Africa at Kimberley, interestingly, this hand axe is in the museum at Kimberley, which is famous for diamonds. And it's in fact right next to the, the, the largest hand dug hole on the planet, which is in Kimberley. I looked through crate after crate of artifacts from the site of Katupan. I think I, I stopped counting, but I looked at somewhere over 800 hand axes from this site. And this is the only one that's attractive. The rest of them are, again, sort of average, clunky things uh, made out of the same raw material, but nobody paid much attention to them. And then there's this one. And so why 
did someone 600,000 years ago invest the added effort that was necessary to produce this? And I think the answer is pretty clear, is they were producing an object that was beautiful. And they probably did it for their own pleasure, but I would guess also for other individuals to see for whatever reason why they did it, we don't know, but it probably operated socially in some way. At the beginning of the catalog, there's an essay by Jared Diamond, and, and he compares these hand axes to bowerbird nests, which are, which in bowerbirds, the males build these nests to attract the females. And some people have suggested that hand axes were like that. That is, they were a way that hominins you know, attracted individuals of the opposite sex. There's a real problem with this, though. And the problem is there are so few really nice-looking hand axes. If everybody was trying to get a date by making hand axes, all of the hand axes would look great, and they don't. So I think we have to understand it differently than being simply a matter of sexual selection. But the idea that it is a special object, I think, is, is important to us. Well, I just had one quick question about that, and that is, can we, you know, with currently available technology, can we tell if the more aesthetic hand axes were used for butchering or not, and, and whether the less aesthetic ones certainly were? If, if, we, if we're really lucky, we can use a technique called edge damage analysis or microware analysis on the edges of the tools. But it turns out that you have to use the tool for a long time before you can get the kinds of polishes and striations that are indicative of use. And this technique has very rarely been successful applied to hand axes. When you look at most hand axes, they don't look as, they've, as if they've been used. I suspect most of them were, but it takes a lot of heavy use before you can actually see any kind of damage. So we don't know. The answer to that question is we don't know whether the nice ones were not used and the not so nice ones were used. So occasionally we run into these funny situations where we get hundreds of hand axes found together and we just don't understand that. And it doesn't seem to be the result of natural agency. It's not water washing them together. The hominins carried them there and deposited them there. And we don't know why. It, it, it suggests that something is happening in social interaction and the hand axes are playing some kind of a role, in which case those who made the really nice ones were perhaps gaining a certain amount of prestige from this. I think that's a reasonable speculation, but, but we don't really know. So let me, let me jump up to my favorites, as you, as you can probably tell. Catalog number 22, which is a giant hand axe from Montague Cave in South Africa. This is actually a really impressive artifact in person. First of all, it's not a hand tool. I mean, if you wanted to use this, it would take two hands, and it would be very awkward to use. It's very heavy. It's very big. Let, and, let me just jump in really quickly. It's about 15 inches tall. It's, it's large enough that in the catalog in which the hand axes are pictured at actual size, it requires a double spread. Correct. And when you, you pick it up, it's very heavy. I mean, I've, I've held this artifact. So it's an example of what we call gigantism. And in, in neuroaesthetics, one of the visual effects that um, artists still use today uh, is known as peak shift, which means if there's a, a pattern that produces pleasure, if you exaggerate that pattern, 
you exaggerate its effect. It's, it's exploited a lot by uh, political cartoonists, for example. So if Barack Obama has slightly large ears, if you exaggerate the size of his ears, then you can make a caricature that's very attractive. And that's, again, an example of peak shift or gigantism. And this is one of the ways that these hominines made a visual impact was by producing really large artifacts. And if they were display objects of one kind or another, and I think that we can make at least a, an argument for that, then if you make a big one, you're making a bigger statement than if you make a little one. So gigantism is, is one of the features we find a lot. In fact, one of the hand axes we wanted to get for the exhibition but couldn't because it was excavated so recently in 2015 is a giant hand axe from Olduvai Gorge that's about 1.4 million years old. Excuse me, it's about 1.6. But we couldn't get it on loan. So there's a picture of it in, in the catalog. So this idea of exaggerating size actually goes way back with hand axes um, before we even get the classic teardrop shapes. And we have quite a few giant forms in the exhibition. Tony Berlant in his collection has some, some really impressive artifacts. So that's one, one effect. Let me jump ahead to a small hand axe. And this is the one on page 84. I don't know what the catalog number is. It's 27, um, and this is one of the most beautiful objects in the show. Yeah, this this is just a lovely little hand axe, and it's what we call a twisted ovate. If you see on the other side, there's a picture of an individual holding it, so you can see that the edge makes this beautiful little S-curve, and it does it around the other side as well. When you hold the artifact in your hand, it looks as if somebody took the artifact and just twisted it around the central pole. Of course, they didn't. They napped it to look like that. There doesn't seem to be any mechanical advantage to doing it. And virtually every hand axe with a twisted profile is beautifully finished. And we have another one in the show from Green Height that's a little bit bigger. And this is, in a sense, an example of peak shift as well, because what they're doing is taking the sort of prototypical shape and altering it just a little bit in a way that gives it some of these nice, beautiful curves to the edges. Again, these are, I think, almost certainly aesthetic objects for the people who were making them, as well as ways of perhaps showing off their particular skill. Now, this artifact is fairly late. The, the twisted ovates from England are probably about 300,000 years old, maybe a little older than that. So they're much closer to the end than the beginning. But there are some twisted ovate hand axes from Ethiopia that are closer to a million years old. So this idea of messing with the shape to produce aesthetic effects actually goes back a, a long way with the hand axes. So finally, I just want to, I'll just talk about one more. Well, actually, there are a pair of them, so I guess it's two. On page 127, 128. These are actually, from an archaeological point of view, the most surprising objects in the exhibition. Uh, these are hand axes that were napped to be in the shape of animals. And the clearest example is the one on the right. And if you know anything about stone napping and you can look carefully at this, what you see is that the underside of the neck has been carefully chipped to produce this nice curve for the underside of the neck. A little nub has been left on the top for the ears. 
Uh, the snout is nice and long. The whole thing just has the basic outline of what looks to be an equid, a horse of some kind, although it probably wasn't a horse because they were found in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Uh, so it was probably something more like a zebra or a wild ass that they were trying to represent. And these are, until this exhibition, nobody had ever actually recognized these things before. And Tony and I found them quite by accident in a museum in France. And the museum owner had acquired a collection of artifacts from uh, Algeria that had been collected by a French army officer in 1979 and 1980. Now, you might ask, what was a French army officer doing in Algeria 1979-1980. I don't know the answer to that question. It's a bit of a puzzle. But from a place called Bentagin, which is way out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I, it's about the remote, as remote a place as you can find. But 300,000 years ago, the Sahara Desert was actually a fairly green place because of climate changes. And there were hand axe-using peoples living in the Sahara Desert at this time. And these were among the most sophisticated hand axe makers we know of. They used a number of techniques for manufacturing hand axes that are very impressive. In fact, this hand axe on the, on the right was made using one of these techniques. It's called Toshengi technique. And it's for, for start off by preparing a big boulder core and then they remove a flake. And this takes a lot of strength to do. And then they modify the flake. And look, this is a big modified flake is what it is. But then it was carefully modified to be in the shape of an animal. And this is important because this is, the, to my knowledge, the oldest recognized zoomorphic form uh, anybody's ever found. And it's about 300,000 years old. And what it tells us is that they were not only making pleasurable objects, they were beginning to represent things with the objects. And this is, from an evolutionary point of view, quite momentous because we use the term iconic reference for it. It means they're making icons, they're making images of things. And they weren't just making pleasurable shapes, they were trying to reproduce shapes of living organisms. And this is a dramatic sort of upping the arms race, in, in a sense. Of, of artifacts. So, and it's about this time we begin to find some other funny artifacts that have looked to be figurative as well. It's about the same age, a little bit earlier than uh, what's the Barakat Ram figurine, which is in the exhibition catalog. It's not in the exhibition, which is a little carved piece of pumice from Israel that looks a bit like a woman. And many people consider this to be the earliest human figurine ever found. And what that tells us is we're beginning to probably enter a domain we might want to call art in the more modern sense of symbolic representations of things. And in a sense, that's the end of the show, as far as Tony and I are concerned, because we think the show documents this development from an aesthetic focus on gestalt shapes and pleasing forms to eventually the production of representational objects. Well, there's one more thing I want to ask about before we're done with the show. You also argue, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, because I think you're not alone in having noticed this, that many hand axes draw a viewer's attention to the middle of the form in an effort to highlight an anomaly of some sort, such as a fossilized shell in a hand axe that's from a about 300 to 500,000 years ago, it was found in Norfolk in England. 
What does this framing, as you call it, suggest or even mean? Well, it, it, it corroborates two things. One, it corroborates the fact that the stone nappers were focusing on the visual appearance of the objects. That's the first thing. And second, it corroborates the, the neuroesthetic impulses that the hominines were using, because this idea of framing and using shapes to focus attention is a, a neuroesthetic effect. It's something we use all of the time. We don't even pay attention to it because the picture frame is something you don't consider to be part of the work of art. And yet it is because it's what focuses your attention on what the artist is doing. So that's why these the objects with shells and with holes in them corroborate the neuroesthetic interpretation of these as aesthetic productions. It's uh, fascinating stuff. The book is absolutely great. Thomas Wynn, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.